Good morning. Welcome to Northwest Hills Online. We're so glad you're here with us today. Megan Karstensen here. I don't know what feels more weird, being filmed and being on your screen this morning or the fact that I got dressed this morning. I mean, these jeans are so restricting after a whole month of stretchy pants and I don't think that the COVID-19 pounds really helps anything. I wish that I could see your face right now to see if you're laughing with me or maybe just looking at me like you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just going to go with that you're in your sweatpants too this morning. And I think we might as well embrace it because this is our only chance to wear sweatpants to church because as soon as we're back to church, that will no longer be normal anymore. But wherever you're at and whatever you're wearing and however you're feeling about your quarantine situation, we're just so glad that you're here with us this morning. There's no better place to be on a Sunday morning at church than at church. Um, but before we dive in, we just want to ask that you take a moment and just pause and prepare yourself to receive God's word, to hear from him and to worship him. Um, just bring yourself to kind of a focused rest. And we know that this looks different depending on your context, but we just really feel like this is an important part of engaging in an online service. So whatever you need to do right now to just uh, stop and to pause and to prepare your heart, I'm going to pause here for just a few moments and then pray and you can join me in that. I'm going to pray. Uh, Lord, we just come before you right now and we just pause. We just take a moment to rest. And in this moment, God, we just declare that you are on the throne, that you love me, you love each of us, you love our families, you love our church, you love our city. And you want what's best for us and that you know what's best. And God, we just trust you right now. And in this pause, Lord, we just take whatever is running through our minds, whatever is distracting us, uh, whatever weight we're bearing in the season of unknown, whatever is pulling at our attention, God, we just set that aside right now and we just rest in you. Jesus, you say that your burden is light and that you bring rest for our souls. And so Lord Jesus, we ask that right now that you would once again give us your burden that is light and that you help us rest. Jesus, we need you and we love you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope that you enjoy this online service. We hope that it's enriching. We hope that it's challenging and we hope that it brings you to Jesus. Um, here's Justin, who's going to lead us in a time of worship as we worship through singing this morning.
Hey, Don Snow here. Good morning, Northwest Hills family. Hi, Northwest Hills. From the Moses family. Welcome to Church Online. I'm looking forward to this morning. We all miss you. We miss coming to church. We miss you so much. But we're watching the sermons on Sundays with you. We miss you. We're here with you online. Can't wait to see you all again. Love you. Look forward to seeing you all soon. All right, good morning, Northwest Hills Community Church. Pastor Josh Karstensen here. Uh, Welcome wherever you are. Uh, You may be uh, watching from your living room in your apartment with a bunch of roommates this morning. You may be in your house with your family. You may be by yourself. You know, honestly, some of us are like, I just need to get out. I just need to get in my car and I just need to drive, right? Gas is cheap. It's the only place that you can be isolated all by yourself. So why not? Go for it. Wherever you are, welcome. Welcome to Church Online. Glad you're here. If you've got a Bible, we will be in the book of Romans, chapter 14 today. Uh, and I want to be very honest and very clear up front. This sermon is going to be significantly longer than any sermon that I typically would do on a Sunday morning here. And there's a couple of reasons. My friend JJ is laughing as I say that. There's a couple of reasons why I, want, I wanted this morning to be a little bit longer. Uh, the first one is... Just that um, you have the ability to pause me at any moment. Uh, You can watch this in two parts. You can put me on one and a half speed. You can put me on double speed. Uh, You can literally just say, you know what? Like, I'm going to fast forward a little bit and get through this section and get to this other section. And when you come here on a Sunday morning in kind of the regular service here, there's, there's no way to do that. So I'm giving you a little bit of freedom and autonomy that you obviously have that you wouldn't have on a Sunday morning. Uh, second reason is on a, on a typical Sunday, we wouldn't have the ability uh, to tell our child care workers, hey, uh, Josh is going to want to give like an hour-long sermon this morning. Good luck with the three-year-olds. That just would not go over well at all. And I just love our child care workers enough to not put them through that um, because I have a three-year-old and I know what that looks like. And uh, lastly... I would just say um, we are kind of getting close to the end of our study in Romans, which is, um, which is strange and beautiful all at the same time. But uh, as we're finishing, uh, next week, Gary Jones, our youth pastor, will be preaching through Romans 15. The following week is chapter 16, and that's Mother's Day. Um, so I kind of feel like uh, this is an opportunity to kind of take a step back and to give the big picture again at what Paul has been working at through the entire book. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. But um, yeah, today is going to be um, kind of a broader picture for a while of what we've been studying in the book and then getting the particulars of what chapter 14 is all about. So again, just up front, some of you are always saying, hey, you should just preach longer. You're going to love this. Some of you are like, you know what, like a 30 to 25 minute sermon would be ideal. You can watch this in two or three parts. You have the total freedom. I hope you enjoy. Um, We're going to get into this. But uh, before I do get in, I do want to say we have a vision and a mission that is pretty simple. It is one that is uh, aimed at three very simple things. We want to love Jesus, we want to live like Jesus, and we want to make him known. Uh, To love Jesus, what we do very simply is we have two very, very simple asks, and that is that you'd be a part of our church or a church, and that you uh, would practice the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are ancient practices that people have been doing for thousands of years, things like prayer and silence and solitude and Sabbath. We did a whole series on this um, back in the fall. You can go back, uh, nwhills.com. You can podcast it, listen to that series. I'm not going to go into it now, but great ways to spend time with Jesus. And then uh, to live like Jesus, uh, we believe that we're 
were called to do that, to be like him. Uh, he lived in community. He lived with a group of people who he was committed to doing life with. And we do that primarily through community groups. These are groups of smaller, um, these are smaller groups of people that right now are meeting, meeting digitally via Zoom. I know it's not as great as meeting in person, but we're making the best of what we can. In the middle of all this, um, I would encourage you, if you're not in a community group, you can still go to our website. You can sign up. There should be a slide at the very end of all this uh, that will kind of work you through how to sign up for that. And then um, we also believe in serving. And it is a unique opportunity that we have before us uh, with this pandemic uh, that serving does not look like it did uh, three months ago, particularly all the Sunday morning aspects of serving, but we're called to serve beyond just the church. So what is God asking you to do uh, as a follower of Jesus in terms of serving? Um, I would just continuously put that before you and just say, what are the opportunities that you have? Whether it's your family, whether it's coworkers, um, there's very unique opportunities that we have right now. So what is God asking you to do? And then lastly, uh, and this is very important, we are called to make Jesus known. And more than ever, honestly, right now, um, we are reminded that the primary means by which Jesus is made known is not, and, and I say this again, is not through our Sunday services. We believe that the better effective means of sharing the gospel is us individually on our own outside of this meeting right here and right now, Um, bringing that news, that hope of the gospel to our world. Again, it's not just bringing people here to a service, but it's bringing hope to people who would never walk into this room, who would never be a part of this. And I think it's just such a beautiful reminder right now, while we don't have this, that the gospel is being proclaimed, not because people are coming to a building on Sunday morning, but because a group of people who love Jesus, who are committed to following him, are saying, you know, I'm going to take this word to people outside of my local church, and that's going to happen through intentionally me loving people and making Jesus known. So I just hope and pray that you would just be asking God right now, God, who am I supposed to make you known to? Is that my neighbor over here? Is that this family member over here? Is that this coworker over here? We all have been placed in unique spots, and what a reminder that the gospel is shared and proclaimed, not primarily through a service here on Sunday morning, but through us taking that hope to our world. So that's what we're about as a church. That's our vision. That's our mission. Now on to our text. Um, we are, like I said earlier, we're going to be um, kind of spending a, a good chunk of time, and I mean a good, probably a half of this sermon, just looking at the whole picture of what we've been learning throughout the book of Romans. And why am I doing this? Some of you might be thinking, gosh, Josh, we've been at this three months. It seems like a big, long recap feels unnecessary. Well, if that's you, like, feel free. You can push the pause button and you can fast forward like 15 or 20 minutes. You have the freedom. Um, But I I just, I want to say, if we just focus on the end of the book and we forgot what happened in the beginning, It would be uh, similar to watching a movie and having the most important part of the movie be the beginning, and you're watching the end, and you forget what happens in the beginning. Like we got to know the beginning foundations of what are happening in the book of Romans for the latter part to make sense. Um, If we just focus on chapter 14 today, if all we do, if someone uh, just is joining us for the first time, and you're just looking at chapter 14, you might walk out of... Uh, listen to that saying, you know what, like, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that without getting the foundation and really the true uh, meaning behind why we're supposed to do all that. 
So I don't want to get to the how without reminding us occasionally on the why. And again, uh, the next two weeks are going to be a little bit different. So I wanted to spend some time kind of wrapping it all together here, uh, looking at the totality of, of this big argument, because this book that we're looking at, that we've been studying, is one long, cohesive argument from the very first words of chapter 1 all the way to the last words of chapter 16. And I want to kind of get that picture in front of us. So let's rewind here. Let's go back. We're going to go back to chapter 1, the very, very beginning things that we learned from Paul in chapter 1. And these, um, what I'm about to say is some, some hard words. There's some words that, um, that we read and we just go, man, that's a major punch in the stomach. It's a major kick in the face. Um, but they're, they're true, they're good, and there's hope that comes out of it. So in the very, very beginning of, of Romans, Paul kind of lays out this argument, and he talks about um, who God is and who we are. And he says, the wrath of God is being poured out on all mankind because of two things, because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we'll talk about those two words. Those are two huge themes throughout this whole book. Um, but the wrath of God being poured out, what that means is that means that we're going to be separated from God, uh, both here on this earth and then forever in eternity, um, ultimately through death. And we are, we're, we're hurting. We, we are, are deserving this wrath of God. We're going to be separated from him forever. And that's horrible news. And uh, if you're a person of, of um, intellectual integrity, you read those words and, and you kind of have three possible responses. Uh, the first response is you can read that and you can go, well, I, I don't really believe any of that. I don't believe that to be true. The second way that you can respond is you can say, well, that might be true. It may not be true. I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with something like that. And the third response is to say, man, that, that's heavy. I'm, I'm separated from God now. I'm separated from God forever and eternity. Um, what can I do about this? Because this is not a position I want to find myself in. And um, how you respond uh, to one of those three ways really determines, um, is, is really determined by a couple of different things. The first one is how you view the authority of the person telling you that news. Right, so Paul is the author. He's a human author of this book. It was written 2,000 years ago um, in Corvallis, Oregon today, 2020, middle of pandemic, coronavirus. We read that, and, and you, have a, you have an option of how to respond. But the first thing that uh, you're going to kind of decipher and figure out as you're figuring out whether this is true or not is where does this source come from? Is this source reliable? Where did I get this news? Where did I get this information? Is it something that I read on the internet somewhere? Is it something that I read on Fox News? Is it something that I heard from Babylon B? Where did I get this news from? Ultimately, yes, we get it from the Bible. So you have to ask yourself, do I believe that the Bible is authoritative? Do I believe that this person, Paul, really wrote these words and that they really are a representation of what God wanted him to say? You have to ask yourself that question, do I believe that? The next most important question, and, and that first question is a very, very important question, and I can't get to kind of giving the whole argument of why you should believe Paul today, but I will say you have to ask yourself the question, do you believe that it's authoritative? But then the next question is very, very important. It's almost equally important, and it is, does the information that's being shared with me, does it corroborate with how I see the world? Right? Because Paul, what he could have done is he could have just said, here, here's the truth. The truth is God's wrath is being poured out on all mankind. You're in serious trouble. But he doesn't do that. He makes an argument. He makes an argument and he spells out why we should believe him, which not only is very kind, but it's also incredibly helpful. So what is Paul's argument? Why does he tell us you should believe the things that I'm about to tell you? Because what he spells out resonates with how I see the world and how I experience life right in front of me. He makes an argument about this wrath of God that's being poured out on all mankind for the two reasons that we stated earlier. 
both for ungodliness and for unrighteousness. So let's look at these two words. The first one is ungodliness. Uh, the, the simplest way to explain this is just a, a mere disbelief in God's existence. So this is someone who says, God, I don't believe that you exist. I'm not going to follow you. I don't believe that I owe um, anything to any sort of supreme being whatsoever. And then unrighteousness. This uh, idea that we are not living how we morally ought to. We're not obeying the commands of God, um, but we are living in a way that we ought not. And Paul kind of spells out what that looks like. This is people who are making functional gods out of things that are not God. Right? So he kind of he looks at all these different things of like how we uh, make gods out of things that aren't God. Right? So for you and I, that may be things like uh, our family, our friends, our sports teams. Yeah, remember those? Super fun. I miss them. Rest in peace. Our professions, our vacations, our houses, our bodies, our desires, our political persuasions, even things that are good things. And a lot of these are really, really good things, but things like helping people, devoting our lives to helping people. If we put these things in place of God and we hold them at the highest altar and we say, I'm going to commit my life to this thing and I'm going to make this thing God, ultimately Paul reminds us that these things will fail us. They will not give us the joy, the hope, the satisfaction that we long for. And really we're putting, putting them in a place that is not God and we will be punished for that. Well, that's super exciting. Kind of the initial reaction coming out of that feels like, well, wait, why would we be punished? Why would God pour out his wrath for us if we don't know him? Right? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. If, if you look out and you're like, I just, I just don't, I don't see evidence of God's existence. Therefore, I don't believe in him. Why am I held accountable for that? That just doesn't seem very fair. Paul addresses this argument in the very first chapter in verse 19. He says this. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul says when we look out in the universe, when we look out on our earth and we see the oceans and we see the mountains and we see rivers and we see lakes and we see beauty, he says the um, gut reaction should and ought to be something created this that was very unlike you and I. God must exist. This God must exist who is all-powerful, who is omniscient, who is all-knowing. This God has to exist because you and I could never create something like this. Therefore, we are without excuse. Nature screams God's existence. Now, what about behavior? Right? To, to you and I who go like, well, I, don't, I didn't know that I was supposed to live a certain way. How am I supposed to live uh, according to God's law if I had no idea that God exists and know what his law is? We read this in chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles, and that's anyone who's not a Jew, that would be you and I, that's any person who do not have the law, this is the rules of God, uh, by nature do what the law or the rules require, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." Translation, why are we going to be judged for doing what we ought not to do? Well, because we all have a conscience, a little Tweety Bird, a little 
this over here, this over here that says, yeah, you should live like this. No, you should live like this. You should do this. We all have something inside of us that tells us innately this is how you ought to behave. This is how you ought to live, right? We all have that deep down inside, right? But, you know, some of us still might be saying, well, even if we have that deep down inside, why would God judge us for not living that way? Right? Ultimately, um, we're told that God exists and he will judge all of us for our disbelief in our um, unright behavior, living how we ought not to. But someone might ask the question, well, how am I supposed to know what's right or what's not? When I stand before God, what am I supposed to say? How is he going to judge me? Especially if I didn't believe that God existed and I didn't know what his rules are. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who's a 20th century theologian, I've shared with this uh, earlier uh, as we went through our study, but he had this idea of the invisible tape recorder. This kind of this idea of there's something that's like around your neck at all given times, like some like mini Alexa device that's um, picking up all your thoughts, all the things that you say about how you judge other people. So you stand before God one day, uh, he's about to hand out judgment, and you say to him, well, I didn't know how I was supposed to live. And God says, okay, like I get that. That's reasonable. I won't judge you by that. But I'll judge you by the way that you, um, that you judge other people. And there's been this little device that's been around your neck your whole life that picks up the way that you judge other people. So let me just play your own standard of how you think people should live. And I'll judge you by your own standard, right? And so then the, the, the recorder is played and you hear all kinds of things like, oh man, my sibling should behave like this or my, my coworker should have behaved like this or my professor should have behaved like this or my president should have behaved like this or my boss or my neighbor or whoever, my own child. And we make up all these standards on how we believe everyone else should live. And the whole point is we don't even live up to the standard that we judge everyone else for, that we judge everyone else that they should live up to. And God says, I'm just going to hold you accountable to that. And even that will be enough to condemn all of us. But then there's the religious person who goes, oh, I know how I'm supposed to live. You know, I've got the Bible. I, I feel like I know God. I feel like I know his standard. I'm not like that person who has no idea who God is. I'm not like that person who doesn't know how I ought to live. Like I, I'm living in a way that feels right. I feel like God's blessing me because of it. You look at my life and it seems like things are going well. What about that religious person? We read this in chapter two, verse 17 about the religious person. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, this is the translation for you and I would be, if you call yourself a religious person and you say that you have God's commands, his rules, um, and you boast in knowing God, verse 18, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, this is hard. Because this for the religious person is God saying to you, hey, guess what? You're a massive hypocrite. You say that you know how you should live. You say that you are a guide to everyone else in the world. You say like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm morally superior. I know God. I know how I'm supposed to live. You should live like me. And then God makes it very clear through the writing of Paul that even those of us who think that we're morally superior, we don't live up to that standard either. 
I think some of us, um, that is a major punch in the gut. I think some of us, though, we don't really believe it. I think it's interesting, though, if you, if you look at study after study after study, and there's a lot of studies that prove this, if you were to measure the moral behavior of someone who's a self-identified Christian and someone who's a self-identified agnostic or atheist, unfortunately, you cannot tell the difference very often between the two of them, right? Because the reality is there are many people who do not know and follow God who have high moral standards and who live um, what we would call... Um, righteous lives in terms of uh, ethical living. And there are a lot of people who are Christians who do that, but there are also a lot of Christians who do not live that way. Um, And the reality is that's all of us. And Paul makes it very, very clear. So we get to the end of chapter two, and we have this massive problem. Because whether you say that you know God, or whether you say you don't know him, whether you are trying to follow all his commands or whether you don't know what his commands are, no matter what side you're on, we're faced with separation from God. We're faced with eternal separation from God, which ultimately is death. And what do we do with that? Now, before you get kind of worked up and you say, well, that doesn't seem right, that doesn't seem fair, We live in a world where we celebrate justice. We want guilty people to be punished. We do. Like everything in my soul is like if someone assaults one of my children, I want you to be punished. If there is someone who does something wrong, we want to uphold a standard of justice unilaterally in the world that we live in until the moment that it comes to us. Right, until the mirror is flipped on us and we look at it and we go, you know what, I am guilty of these things. I am guilty of saying you should live this way, but then I don't live this way. We want this world of justice until it comes back on us. So what do we do with this? Then we get to Romans chapter 3. Some of the greatest news we will ever hear, ever, is Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We see two sweet beautiful words, but now. This is without doubt some of the best words we'll ever hear in the Bible. Romans 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned. That's me, that's you, that's everyone and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Three crucial things that we hear that separate Christianity from any other religion on the planet, that we are justified, that we're made right before God as a gift. We are justified freely, through faith, by the blood of Jesus. I am not justified by anything that I do. There is no action that I can do that before God, God would look at me and say, Josh, you are made right. But I am justified freely by faith. By faith, simply by saying, Jesus, you came to earth as a God-man. You took on what was owed to me in the death of your son. Jesus, you died in my place. That death was owed me. You died for me. And all I need to do through faith is say, I believe that you died in my place. I believe that you are a God and thank you. 
I need you. I confess that I needed you and I will give my life to follow you. That's what faith and faith alone is. So you and I are saved by faith, not by works. And here's the thing. Um, it sounds easy to say, but it, it sounds like, okay, that, that feels very, it sounds believable, but it's really, really hard to believe. Like deep down, it's hard to believe that I am not loved by God by the things that I do. Because most things in the world are that way. Most things are like, hey, it's easier to love someone if they behave a certain way, right? Let's be honest. Like, it's easier sometimes to love your kids if they behave a certain way, but that is not the case. We are loved by God. We are accepted by God. We are made right with God, not because of anything that we do. And it takes Paul a number of chapters to just keep saying this again and again and again. Like, you are saved. You are made right just by your faith. That is it. It's a magnificent truth that Christians hold on to. He goes on and he continues um, for a number of chapters, again, kind of building out the theology of how we're saved and what that faith looks like and how it's God who works all things together for good. And, um, and then he kind of moves and he transitions into um, what right living looks like. But he works 11 chapters of getting that theology, of getting our salvation right until um, or before he moves into this whole idea of how we're supposed to live. And we get into kind of how we're supposed to live in chapter 12. Uh, and from there, we, we started looking at a couple different things. Um, we looked at the first thing he says. He says, therefore, the very first words of chapter 12, therefore, meaning like everything that you learned from chapters 1 through 11, like build up to this moment. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. So he's, he's talking about like, okay, this is what your life should look like. This is the sacrifice of your life and how it should look like in light of everything that you've learned. And he says the very first thing he talks about how uh, we should think and how we should behave is he talks about you need to have a right view of yourself. He talks about two very, very important right views. The one is that um, for some of us, we have a proclivity towards um, kind of having an arrogant view of who we are. We have an uplifted kind of, um, we feel like we're better than everyone else. God says, no, like, if you understand who you are in me, you got to understand that you are not saved because of your acumen, because of your accomplishments, uh, because of this little empire that you've built. You're saved as a gift from me. And if something was given to you as a gift, there is no room for arrogance, so for the Christian who struggles with arrogance, in the very beginning of Romans 12, Paul says, you've got to have a right view of yourself. And then not only for those of us who struggle with arrogance, there are those of us on the opposite end of the spectrum who struggle with insecurity. And we, we may feel like, you know what? I look around, I see far more people um, accomplishing way more than I ever could. My life just hasn't gone the way that I hoped or dreamed that it would go. And I struggle believing that God would love me or accept me just as I am. And God reminds us, like, no, like, you're worth the fact that I would give my son for you. That's how much you're valuable to me. So before we get on to living and treating other people, we gotta have a right view of ourselves. Not one that's too high, not one that's too low, but one that says I'm loved, I'm accepted by God as an act of faith through his grace. He goes on from here and he talks about how we're supposed to view people in the church. 
And he talks about how everyone, like you and I, we all have individual unique gifts. Um, right now, it's unique because we're not gathering on Sundays, but we're still a body of believers. Uh, if you call Northwest Hills your home, and you still have been gifted by God with very particular gift set that is used to complement each other to make ourselves the total body of Christ, to make our, ourselves the total church of Northwest Hills. You know, he talks about, um, you know, some people have a gift of serving or encouraging or teaching or giving or showing mercy. Um, all these different gifts God's given us individually. And so I would just ask us again and again, what is your particular gift? What has God gifted you? And maybe it's a gift for this season or seasons past or seasons to come. What is God gifting you with and how are you using it for the body of Christ? He goes on to talk about how we're supposed to treat those outside the church and how we're supposed to treat those who we consider enemies. He says this in chapter 12, verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Man, that's a wild flip. Like typically it would be like, no, if you're cursing me, I'm not going to bless you. He says in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Wow. Totally different way of living. He moves on to what we talked about last week and how to have a right view of government. Uh, government's role and, and why they exist. And he talks about the fact that all government, all government has derivative authority from God. That God is the one who gives governments their authority. And the role of government is twofold. It's to bring law and to bring order. Two things very which uh, flow from the nature of God himself. So governments exist in that way. And our response as citizens is to honor, is to obey, is to follow our government's Unless, unless they command us to do what God forbids or unless they forbid us to do what God commands. And if those two things are not true, we are to submit and we are to obey, which again is so timely in a, in a, in a time where our government has had more authority, more control, more direct impact on our lives than we have had in the last couple hundred years in many, many ways. So now finally we get to kind of some new text for today. Um, this is uh, kind of, I'm just going to very, very, very quickly kind of summarize the rest of chapter 13 and then get into our text today for chapters 14. So at the end of, or kind of the middle of 13, uh, Paul looks at two more things. He looks at how a Christian is to view the Old Testament and kind of uh, moves on towards just general behavior, how we're supposed to kind of uh, have a general look at how we're supposed to live. Kind of, again, just general behavior. So in terms of the big question, uh, particularly it was relevant to the Jews because uh, these were people who for thousands of years had lived a certain way, uh, following the Old Testament and following kind of the law and order of all these different laws of how they're supposed to treat each other. Um, Paul addresses this issue of how are we supposed to think about the Old Testament? So he says this, he summarizes Jesus' saying from Matthew 22, and he says this starting in verse 8. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Man, you want to talk about taking something insanely complex, something very, very long and very, very dynamic with all kinds of do's and don'ts and simplify it to its most simple form of communication. 
This is what Jesus does, again, in Matthew 22, when someone comes to him and says, Jesus, what's the most important of all the Old Testament? And this is what Paul is saying here in Romans 13. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it sounds simple, but any sort of command on how we're to treat people falls under this very, very uh, significant commandment. Think about how different the world would look like if you and I treated people and loved people like we love ourselves. Right? Think about, I mean, just, just one simple example would be like how different, like we wouldn't need keys. We wouldn't need uh, codes. We wouldn't need passwords. Like how much of our life is spent trying to protect our assets, right? Like you would never have to lock your car. You'd never have to lock your house. You'd never have to have a Gmail password or a bank account password because we wouldn't steal because you would never steal from someone if you treated people and loved people the way that you love yourself. Life would be very, very different. If you want to understand what God's ultimate heart is for how we're to treat people, it would be summarized in this. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Obviously, that would preach, and you could talk a long time on that, but we're going to keep going because we've got to get to 14. So kind of lastly, he talks about the end of 13. Um, he, says, he says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And he talks about all these different deeds of darkness. He talks about drunkenness and sexual immorality and fighting and jealousy. And he says, instead, put on Jesus. Kind of the simplest form and question that we can ask ourselves is, how can I live like Jesus? Jesus did not use people as products. Jesus, you know, think about how he treated women in a day and age where even prostitutes were regularly interacting with him, where most people used them for their bodies. Jesus said, I love you as a human being. I love your soul. I care for you. You are valuable, right? Jesus says, do not um, operate off the natural desires of your flesh, but instead treat people like I treated people. Understand that everyone is significant, everyone is valuable, and understand that there are a lot of desires that will naturally come up, even for the believer, that are going to want you to kind of steer your life in a certain way. And Jesus says, no, don't say yes to these things. Move this way. And, and the text talks about putting on Christ. Um, we, we, we've kind of talked about this going through the book of Ephesians in the recent past, and this kind of idea of putting on this jacket that's like, this is my new self, this is Christ. And he talks about this little phrase, he says, wake up, O sleeper, wake up. Don't walk in the old way. Don't walk in the desires that like your, your body wants to do this. It's instant. It's, it's seemingly gratifying. He says, this will not lead to your flourishing. Flourishing looks like this, being and living like Jesus. So if you're a Christian, summarizing chapter 12 and 13, have a right view of yourself. Understand where you fit in the whole church. Understand what your giftings are. Understand how you're supposed to love and treat those outside the church and how you're supposed to treat enemies. Understand your role and posture towards the government. Understand how you view the Old Testament and how it's all summarized in one simple phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself and understand that you're going to have a proclivity to want to, to kind of follow the old self but say no to that, to follow Jesus, to put on Jesus, and to obey what is right. So that's chapters. 12 and 13. Now we get into 14, and this is, it's a fascinating uh, reality that in chapter 14, for the very first time in all of the book of Romans, Paul kind of looks at the church in Rome that he's writing to, and he says, hey guys, this is for you. Like, this is for your church. Like, this is how all of the theology from 1 through 11 and all the practical living from 12, 13, this is how it applies to your specific church. And honestly, it's a little sobering and it's a little humbling, 
but the very first commands that he gives to the church in Rome are perfect commands to our church and to any church that I've ever set foot in. And I do not think it's a mistake that Paul very particularly talks about this. Um, So if you're in a place where you can stand, where that makes sense, I'm going to open it up in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I just want to make a number of observations here. Uh, the very first thing that I want to talk about is, is the very clear observation that he is talking to the church. He's talking to, um, I would say, two different groups, if you will. Um, these groups are both Christians, and he's making it very, very clear. Do not judge each other. Okay, so Christians in the church, do not judge each other. Okay, and then he talks about this very particular idea of don't judge each other over opinions. Okay, now opinions are, it's, it's kind of this interesting idea, and we're going to kind of work our way through this, um, and we'll give some pretty significant examples. So what I want to do is I want to look at what he talks about here in terms of opinions, in terms of how we're not supposed to judge each other, and then we're going to look at our lives, you and I, and how this applies to us. So at the core of this argument here uh, in Rome, uh, in the early church, is two different groups of people. One group of people uh, love to eat meat. They think it's great. They love it. One group of people, absolutely, I'm not going to eat meat. Uh, one group of people loves to drink wine. One group of people is like, nope, absolutely not. I'm not drinking wine. One group of people has like a, group, uh, a specific uh, day that they believe is holy. Another group of people says, no, there's no particular day that is holy. And the text is saying, don't judge the other people uh, on how they have certain convictions. Um, what's very, very clear, though, on either side is that one is called the strong and one is called the weak. It's really interesting. Why is one called the strong and one called the weak? Particularly in this text, the weak is the person who says that it, it or who abstains from eating veg. Sorry, the weak is the person who says um, that I don't eat meat. Right now, is that a health biological argument? No, it is a spiritual argument. Uh, this the Paul says that this person is weak because they believe that it is better before God, it is more honoring to God, it makes you more holy if you abstain from eating meat. And that is simply not true. Like, theologically, that is wrong. That is wrong in Romans. Therefore, he says um, that that person is spiritually weaker. Now, why would someone say it's more honoring to God to not eat meat? Clearly, this person has never tried tri-tip, has never tried bacon, why would this person say that? 
Now you got to go back in a little bit of your Jewish history, and you got to realize that for a few thousand years, the way that God, one of the ways that God separated his people was through dietary restrictions. And there were a number of meat products that the people of Israel were not allowed to eat. And in their abstaining from these certain meats, they were showing that they were different, that they were set apart from all the other people groups around them. And that was one of the ways that showed that they were clean, that they were um, kind of set apart, different from everyone else. Well, fast forward a little bit. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus dies. You know, we have faith in him. He rises from the dead. And it's his cleanliness that we all get. So it's not the fact that I abstain from any sort of thing that makes me clean. But what makes me clean is having faith in Christ. And God makes it very, very clear. In Acts chapter 10, he speaks to Peter. And he says, um, you're allowed to eat everything now. Like for a long time you weren't, but now you're allowed to eat whatever you want. Everything is clean because you're clean, not because of what you eat or you don't eat. You're clean because of the Lord Jesus. So um, it took a long time for people to get that though. It took a very long time. So you've got this group of people who's saying eating meat is wrong. You've got a group of people saying, no, eating meat is right. One thing that's important to know is that both sides, whether you're a meat eater or not, in this context uh, here in Rome, both sides are trying to please God. They both have a heart that says, I believe this is the right thing to do. Just one of them was misguided a little bit. You see this in verse 6, their heart to both please the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, both parties are doing it from a pure heart and good motives. Notice what the weak person um, is doing by abstaining. Um, They are trying to be obedient. They're trying to be faithful. But notice what they're not doing. They're not sinning. Uh, It's not a sin to abstain from meat. They just have weaker faith because they don't understand the totality of what's going on uh, in kind of New Testament, post-Jesus Christianity. Right, so here's something that I think is so interesting, and, and I've, for the longest time, maybe even until I started studying this, I never really understood, and I never really studied this, but I never really understood why, why is it that the stronger person doesn't just say to the weaker person, um, hey, you're allowed to eat meat. Why don't, wh- I always wonder, like, why don't they just take them to Acts chapter 10 and be like, hey, um, yeah, so there was this vision, and Peter had that he saw animals floating from uh, heaven on a sheet, and God said, yeah, you're free to eat everything. Why doesn't the, the stronger person just say to the weaker person, hey, like, you don't have to be weak. Like, come be strong. Like, you're free to do all this. Bacon's amazing. Like, I, I just, why, why? We're going to talk about that when we get to the application to you and I. But kind of from this text, we see something both to the weak and to the strong. Uh, uh, Paul addresses the weak person first. And, and it's interesting because there's judgments that happen on both sides. First, he talks about the weak person, and I'll summarize verses 9 through 12 here. He says, don't judge other people who have freedoms that you don't feel like before the Lord that you have. Right? In this context, it was the person who abstains from meat. Don't judge other people who eat meat. Don't judge other people who drink wine. Don't judge other people who don't have the same holy days as you do. Because guess what? You're not their judge. They will stand before the Lord one day, and they will have to give an account to God for the things that they've done. That's not you. So don't look at them and think, you know what? You guys are wrong. You need to do it my way. 
don't be that self-righteous Christian who's judging other people who don't see the world the way that you see it. Then he talks to the strong. And he, um, he's, he, kinda, he goes off for a while from verses 13 to 23. First of all, he affirms them. He says, you're right. He says, you're right. He says this in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So give these things up in the presence of other people uh, who would stumble seeing the freedoms that you have. Give up those freedoms in front of other people um, so you're not going to cause them to stumble. And here's what he says. He says, verse 19, but pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So he says to the strong, don't say to people, well, it's your problem. You don't see the full picture of the freedom that I have. You need to see the full picture. That's not what Paul says. But be willing to change your behavior and honor those who see things differently. All right, so as we wrap up this sermon, what about us? Right? The, the reality is, like, it's not a big debate at Northwest Hills whether or not we should eat meat or whether or not we should be vegetarians. I mean, although I, I have had a few conversations with people who think, like, God's plan from the very beginning was that we be plant eaters and, you know, meat eating is the product of the fall. Like, that's clearly we're able to eat meat. I can go to Acts chapter 10 and spell that out for you, or we could just read this from Romans 14. But that's not, I, I think, the most applicable kind of reality that we live under today. Um, So I think today the more appropriate question for you and I uh, would be, what are the non-essential opinions and convictions that we might be tempted to judge other people over? All right, let me make this super simple, super goofy, and super fun for you. Let's just say perhaps you had a preacher who was preaching a sermon, and he thought, you know what, I'm just going to wear whatever I want. And let's just say, let's just say, I mean, hypothetically, that he decided I'm going to wear a Hawaiian shirt and I'm just going to wear some sweet swim trunks on Sunday morning. Now, you want to talk about opinions and convictions, right? Like, I know some of you right now are going, what in the world is happening? Why is my pastor preaching in shorts, particularly that are short with polka dots? Kind of back to Paul's main point. Is wearing shorts that are polka dotted wrong. Well, let me ask you this. Is it a sin? No, it's not a sin. Is it honoring to God? Well, I'd say that depends. That depends on a lot of things. Depends on your context. Depends who you're around. You know, it depends like, hey, am I on a beach somewhere in Hawaii or in some third world country out in the middle of nowhere? preaching to people who are also in shorts with no shirts on, just hanging out on the beach. It really, really depends. But my goodness, we are so good, so good at the church, in the church, at casting judgments about how people dress or what people do with their lives and what kind of music people like. Think about all the different things, the different opinions, if you will, the different non-essential convictions that you and I might have. Right? Think about like, you know, some people are like, you know, it's more honoring to God if you tuck in your shirt. Right? It's more honoring to God if you do not wear a hat inside. It's more honoring to God if, if you wear shoes. 
right? It's more honoring to God if you wear a certain type of sneaker. It's more honoring to God if your clothes are, are this way and not that way. They can't be too tight. They can't be too loose, right? Your hair can't be too nice and it can't be too disheveled, right? Your clothes can't be too cheap and they can't be too expensive, right? And then just outside of that, like, what about the way that you live your life, right? Like, you know, you think about, like, your house is, is way too nice or your house isn't nice enough or your car is way too nice and way too expensive or your car is way too cheap and do you care about anything? You know, you think about, like, how we, we can judge people for the way that they vote for the things that they get behind, right? You think about like um, how we, um, we judge people for the way that they spend their money and their time and their vacations, how they handle their possessions. Like I know some people are just like, you know what? Like I don't need this anymore. I'm throwing it away. And some people are like, I can't believe as a Christian you would throw anything away. My goodness. Some people, you know, the way that they handle their kids and the sports activities that they're in, you know, some families love to just cast judgments. I can't believe you would do 17 sports this season. How ungodly of you. Right? Some people are really good at you know, judging other people for the way that they discipline or teach their children or the music that they like or the music that they like in church or, or the way that they eat or the way that they drink, the way that we do all kinds of things. Like right now, I think in the middle of coronavirus, one of the things that I'm noticing is um, we're really good at judging people and how they respond um, to the government's orders, right? For some people, you know, like, we're, we're just going like, you know what, it's super strict. I'm not allowed to see anyone. Uh, you know, if my parents come from across the nation, I am not going to say hi to them. I'm not going to hug them. They're going to have to stay 20 feet away from me. And some people are like, you know what, I get together with my extended family like every week. And, you know, it's my family. They're my cousins. They're my nieces and nephews. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the spirit of the law. And, I think we can get pretty good at judging people and how we respond this way. So what's our responsibility before God? Again, I don't think it's a mistake that the very first thing that Paul says to the church, particularly in how all this theology applies, is how we are supposed to treat each other and not be judgmental towards things that are not sin. Here's the very first thing I'll say, and then I'm going to give kind of an example that I hope will be helpful, then we'll wrap it all up. The very first thing is, when it comes to any sort of behavior that you and I are doing, whether it's wearing something ridiculous to church, especially as a preacher, I'm sorry, truth is, most of the time I had pants on, I just changed right now. I even feel weird about it. Um, But any behavior you do, whether it's the activities that your kids are in, whether it's the movies that you watch, whether it's the music that you listen to, whether it's the people you hang out with, the house you live in, the vacations you go on, the way that you spend your money, the most important thing in all of those things is that you should be fully convinced before God. We see this in verse five. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So with everything that we do, you got to ask yourself, God, is this honoring to you? Is this pleasing to you? And you got to ask because here's the thing. You, me, we are going to stand individually before God someday. And we're going to have to give an account for our life. And we're going to have to say, here's why I did this. Here's why I made this decision. Here's why I did that. And no one else is going to have to do that. So let me give you just kind of one example. We'll land on this example. It's a silly example, but I think it might be helpful. Imagine you want to buy um, something really nice, right? We'll just use a watch as an example because it's simple, it's trivial, um, and, and I think it's a good example. Like, if this is a bad example, think about a house, a vacation, whatever. But I'm just going to use the watch, okay? If you spend $25,000 on a watch, um, is that right or wrong? Right? Ultimately, it, it just depends. It's not right or wrong. It, it just depends. Like, what are your motives 
before the Lord. Like, why? Why do you want to buy a $25,000 watch? Right? And, and there's a lot of different answers to that. Like, there, there's one part of you that could say, you know what, I want this watch because I want something as a status symbol. I want something that makes me feel good about myself, that makes me feel valuable, that makes me feel superior. On the other hand, you may be someone who just really appreciates kind of the, the uh, mechanical side of watches and you're like really into the artistic side and, and the beauty of it. And you're just like, you know what, like, I just really appreciate its craftsmanship. Right? You know, for, for some, you're just going to have to look at that and go, like, is $25,000 in my budget, in my kind of the world that I'm in, is that an appropriate ratio to spend on a watch? And for some people, the answer may be yes. Right? For me and you and the rest of most of us, like, the answer is probably not. But that's not true for everyone. Right? So is it a sin? Absolutely not. Should you buy this watch? Maybe. If you're convinced before God that it's a good idea, go for it. Okay, so now you have the $25,000 watch, right? You love it. It's beautiful. Tells time most of the time. What should you do with it? When should you wear it? Uh, first of all, I just, just throwing this out there, I would not recommend wearing it to the beach. I would not recommend wearing it while doing any gardening. But that being said, I have really no source of authority on how to wear $25,000 watches. Never been there. Probably will never be in that world. Um, but I would say, should you wear it around other Christians who would look at that watch and instantly go, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're a Christian and have a $25,000 watch. What's wrong with you? And guess what? There's a lot of Christians who would have that response. And in this context, that person would be considered the weak Christian. So if it's not a sin to own a $25,000 watch, how should we look at this situation? First, to the weak person. To the, to the person uh, who would look at someone who has a $25,000 watch on and say, and pass judgment on someone and say, what's wrong with you? I can't believe that you would do that as a Christian. Verse 10, I would read to you this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's not up to you to determine if someone else wearing a really nice watch is anything that you have anything to say about. For all you know, that could have been a gift given by some Saudi prince to someone who rescued their kid from some sinking ship. You have no idea. Do not judge that person, right? Don't judge them for their watch. Don't judge them for wearing whatever they want to wear to church. Don't judge them for the music they listen to, for the worship songs that they like. Do not judge them. That is between them and the Lord. Paul makes that very, very clear. To the person with the very nice watch or the very nice house or car or whatever it is that you have that you feel right before God, verse 13, I would read this. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat or by the watches that you wear or the car you drive, you are no longer watching, walking in love. It's not your job to educate someone and to tell them, you know what, here's why I have this watch. It makes sense on this ratio. It makes sense because of my budget here and what I gave here and how my life here. Like That's not your job. Your job is to be wise around those who you're around. 
And there's always a context in which you want to recognize that some people, their faith is going to be a little bit weaker and they are going to be tempted to want to judge you for the things that you're doing. So be aware of those people and honor them by perhaps not wearing that watch, even though it's not wrong, but don't wear it necessarily around that type of person. Does it mean that all Christians are going to judge you for that? Absolutely not. But some certainly will, those who would be considered weak. So we need to be careful in how we display our lives, right? Not just with the things that we wear, but everything else about our lives. And here's the thing, in the digital world that we live in, it is so easy to display our lives in a way that there's no context, in a way that would cause a lot of other people to say, man, I can't believe they're living this way. I can't believe they're doing that, in a way that would cause other people to stumble, which is why I'm not the hugest fan of a lot of social media, because you get stuff out there without context. So as a stronger Christian, be wise and be careful in how you display your life to others in the world and to the church. I'm going to end with this. This is what matters most, and we read this in verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not think it's a mistake that this is the very first thing that Paul says because he knows that there is going to be tensions within the church amongst other people around things that aren't sin issues, but are around heart issues. So he, he makes this whole argument based on the fact that he knows there's constantly going to be people who are looking around judging each other. He knows that this is going to be an issue. Therefore, um, knowing that we will always see things differently, what matters most? Well, let's look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I do not think it's a mistake that Paul starts here um, with the local church. He knows that there's constantly going to be people who are of different opinions uh, about things that ultimately there's always gray areas on. There's always room for interpretation. There's always room for just not understanding someone else's perspective. But he recognizes that in order for a church to be a church, We want to prefer one another. We want to be a people who um, give up our freedoms for the sake of other people. Because going all the way back to the beginning of Romans, that's how you and I were saved. Right? Like, Jesus could have looked at us and could have said, like, yeah, that's your problem. But what did he do? He took his freedom, his perfect unity in the Godhead. He gave up his freedom. He took on humanity And he gave his life. And in response, the ask for Christians is at times in the church, give up your freedoms. We have them, but give them up. If you're stronger, give them up. And if you're weaker, recognize that it's not up to you to judge the rest of the people. uh, But to also recognize that you were saved because someone else gave up their freedoms for you. Maybe give up your spot of moral what you might consider moral high ground to love everyone else around you. As we wrap it up, I just want to ask you to kind of take a minute to look at your life and to say, you know what, what are areas in my life that I'm quick to judge other people? Because here's the thing, like, like me, myself, my natural inclination when someone says, hey, Josh, why are you doing this, is to want to justify myself. Right? Here's why what I'm doing isn't wrong. And here's how you need to get things right. But that's not what Paul teaches us to do. He says, honor the other person. Recognize that, you know, their faith may not be where yours is. So be careful, be wise, be kind to the church and to those around you. Would you pray as we close this out? Father God, um, 
we come before you, and I just, I just want to thank you for giving up your freedoms for us. And I, I recognize that there are all kinds of different ways that we can be divided over opinions in the church, and, and there's just countless numbers of ways that that will happen. Lord, I, um, I confess that it can be really easy to come and just argue our point of view and argue why we think that we're right, rather than giving up our freedoms for the sake of other people. I pray that we would be a church that looks past um, some of these simple things and looks to the bigger picture. Looks to the picture that says, God, you gave up your freedoms to love me. What freedoms do I need to give up to love and bring peace to other people? Lord, we need you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I hope this morning was meaningful for you. I hope it was enriching. Um, If you are new to our church family, thank you so much for joining us, especially through an online service. That just means so much to us. Um, We would love to connect with you. A really simple way to do that is to text hello to, that's a number two, NWH to 97000. We'd love to answer any questions that you have or help you with any simple next steps. And if you're a regular part of our church family, we would love to hear from you as well. You can jump on to our family Facebook page, or you can uh, reach out to us through our website. You can um, send in a prayer request, or if you have a specific prayer request that you'd like to text to us, you can uh, text pray for that's a number four, NWH to 97000, and we'd love to pray with you. And if you have a specific financial need, we'd love to walk with you during this season. You can email us at elders at nwhills.com. We just want to be a really supportive family during this time. We hope this morning was wonderful. Have a great day. And remember that we want to be a church that loves and supports one another, even in our differences. Now go and love Jesus, live like Jesus, and make him known. Goodbye. We love you.